Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to The Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by The Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 2020. Here we are on January 16th, 2020, and we are looking ahead for the entire year in front of us related to foreclosure matters. And one of the big issues is going to be what are the trends? What can we anticipate? what potentially will happen in various areas of the foreclosure arena, as I often call it. Uh, So we're going to break this down uh, systematically. And before we get into that, uh, I am going to indicate that this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lives, and LendingLies.com. It's made possible very much because of donations from listeners like you. Neil, thanks thanks you for that. I thank you. Any amount that you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly on the blog by selecting the Donate button on that same blog at www dot living lies dot wordpress dot com so in terms of what we're looking at in terms of trends uh longtime listeners to this program know that I am licensed in California where I've practiced for many years. I practice also a lot in the Ninth Circuit for federal appeals and I also handle state appeals and foreclosure matters and other matters in all of the uh, six appellate districts in California. So I will say, it's not a disclaimer, it's just to give all the listeners full information. Today's show is is, is mainly focused, not exclusively, but mainly focused on non-judicial foreclosure matters. Uh, I think in terms of a general framework, what we can say going into 2020 is that, you know, per the the, the kind of real estate uh, cliche that everybody's heard, location, 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 all across the country, we don't have a fundamental trend about property values. And, of course, property values do impact the options of those fighting foreclosure. Uh, Whether you're fighting as a 
as a homeowner occupier, whether you're fighting as a renter, or I should say whether you're, well, sometimes you are a renter. Sometimes you're you're a uh, so-called holdover tenant. Uh, And sometimes I even have cases where someone is a bona fide tenant and the former owner was the foreclosed party. I even have cases going to UD trial right now where I've got bona fide tenants and the usual alphabet soup uh, securitized trust, so-called, are trying to foreclose. Uh, I've got a UD trial on a matter coming up uh, this Tuesday, in fact, with just that constellation of facts. In any event, just to close the loop on that, I don't think we can say here in January 2020 what the trend is in home valuations, certainly not definitively, certainly not for a kind of nationwide calculus. The numbers are too variable. There are trends in local markets. Uh, I think the key there is to follow analysis that you can trust uh, wherever you get that information and then take it from there. But in California, values are all over the map. And from what I've been able to garner, that's also often true in judicial foreclosure states like Florida. Some local real estate markets are up, some are down. And, you know, as a general principle, it's not that you have more or less flexibility uh, when you're the foreclosed party in terms of your options. It's not that you have more or less flexibility uh, depending on whether the market is or up or down. It's your options will be different. If you have a lot of equity in the property, well, you could potentially even buy off the foreclosing party. You might even be able to get a third party come in to take over your loan. Those are all options when there's a lot of equity. What do I mean by a lot of equity? Well, in an environment like California where the the loan amounts, particularly with all the deficiencies, can now be seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars, sometimes even the low millions, and the property values can be consistent with that. If you've got an equity cushion of several hundred thousand, maybe you can bring an outside party in at some time in some capacity. And so buying time with whatever foreclosure you're you're facing, again, even if you're in a judicial state like Florida where evaluation numbers aren't as crazy, let's say you only have an equity cushion in, in a Broward County property in Florida, a classic judicial foreclosure setup. About 100000 on a $400,000 loan that's a significant equity cushion. But again, you might be able to negotiate some kind of third-party payoff or, you know, uh, kind of settlement related to your your situation. 
uh, if your situation is more at the margins, whether you're in a non-judicial or judicial foreclosure state, meaning you're still underwater despite the crazy movement in property values over the last few years. Well, if you're still underwater, you don't have that apparent negotiating leverage. Um, You do still have uh, other options, and one of the aspects that we're going to be talking about that is the Homeowner Bill of Rights that mainly is implicated in the unlimited lawsuit litigation arena, which is what I'm going to discuss first and right now. And this is going to focus on California specifically, again, my state, my area. And uh, the bottom line there is, you know, is the Homeowner Bill of Rights still alive in 2020? Uh, You'd think that would be a simple uh, kind of statement that I would make about that. It's actually fairly complicated. And so we're not even going to try to pin that all down this year. What I can say, well, this show for this year, we are going to have future episodes where there will be additional discussion of that issue. Let me say for now, uh, yes, the Homeowner Bill of Rights in California is very much alive, particularly where the operative events occurred prior to 2020. I mean, for instance, I do have a number of cases that are litigation-ready, litigation-worthy. A number of those are already in litigation where the events at at issue did occur uh, prior to 2020. I mean, for cases like that, there's no issue at all because all the provisions that matter were essentially reauthorized after a theoretical lapse here in California back in January 2018. And certainly all that holds through December of 2019 going forward. Again, the architecture of that, the landscape, the legal environments, the the specific statutory framework, provision by provision. It's a little more complicated than that. Um, But anybody who got a loan mod under review in California prior to 2020, that's all litigation worthy. That's all subject to litigation, depending, of course, on the specific variables of your case. As to as to other issues with plaintiffs' litigation, again, this would be especially so in California. Uh, I think I can speak to non-judicial uh, foreclosure states generally, particularly in the Ninth Circuit where I practice. Uh, nevertheless, I'm seeing a trend for a revitalization of quiet title. Quiet title was always a legitimate cause of action Um, when you are uh, a homeowner, even one uh, who's renting out the property, but especially as the owner-occupier and your entire presence in the property 
is subject to removal from uh, an auction sale non-judicially, which, as we've explained many times on this show, and I won't get into all the particulars due to time constraints, as we have explained many times on this show, the non-judicial foreclosure scheme, I think that's a good way of describing it both denotatively and connotatively, the scheme of non-judicial foreclosure in California is meant to be summary, is meant to limit the homeowner rights. Uh, supposedly, it still preserves, preserves, preserves those rights per the Constitution and otherwise that uh, I think we've established in many years of this show is simply bogus. Those rights are not being preserved. Those rights, in fact, are being very much trotted upon. Those those rights are very much being disregarded. I would even say overwhelmingly in court procedures, but there are judges and there are proceedings and there are attorneys on our side who are getting good results from time to time. I'm happy to include myself in that number again from time to time. And so it is still worth the fight. And there is a path to fighting the other side when you are in a foreclosure environment in California. So part of the way you do that with the unlimited lawsuit litigation, you know, as a plaintiff, in California, again, arguing quiet title was always uh, something that is the gold star for your case. A lot of judges ultimately in the last several years would see quiet title pled, and they would kind of roll their eyes or blanch. However, we're in an environment now where it really needs to be pled. And there's several reasons for that. One, it has gone away as a primary cause of action. So I think the judiciary is less likely to just dismiss it out of hand as an overreach in plaintiff's litigation. And the other big issue is a lot of other causes of action are coming up against statute of limitations uh, defenses uh, because the operative events so often happen around the time of the mortgage meltdown. And here we're talking approximately 2008, 2009. So we're literally out more than 10 years beyond that time frame. So yes, at a really facial, superficial uh, interpretation of the legal time frame during which and on which these cases would be brought. Yes, one can say generally that statute of limitations is a problem and an issue. It's going to be increasingly one year in 2020. Um, the interesting thing is judicially, and again, this show is mainly about non-judicial matters, but I will address the judicial uh, matters uh, briefly. 
it's interesting that I haven't seen the statute of limitations issue be this big front and center salient case killing issue where the securitized trust, for instance, in places like Florida, in places like New York, in places like Massachusetts, all judicial foreclosure states. It's funny that they are able to bring these cases now many years later based on deficient documents or operative documents from, again, we're talking more than 10 years ago. Funny thing that, that they're able to move their cases forward notwithstanding potential statute of limitation issues. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it would be, strictly speaking, inaccurate to say that there is not at all an issue of non-judicial foreclosures, quiet title, statute of limitations. Um, in the real world and the legal world, I've rarely seen it be an actual issue. I am actually getting um, pushback now in some cases moving forward currently on this issue of statute of limitations related to quiet title being pled, uh, that I'm only getting one case site, and that from 1945 is a sign. <laughs> it is a sign for all you listeners out there, whatever side you may be on this issue. That is a sign that there is not a lot of case law supporting the proposition that why a title is subject to a statute of limitations in California. So, I mean, I don't doubt that there is other case law on this issue. And I'm not going to recycle for everyone's behalf the 1945 case I'm referring to because I don't think it's Got a lot of traction. That remains to be seen. We shall see indeed. Uh, I do invite listeners, particularly those who are homeowners and on our side, to check out uh, what they can find on this, you know, as a kind of supplement to what we're discussing right now. But the shorthand of what I'm saying is quite title is, a, is is still a cause of action that can be pled in non-judicial states. And typically you will not get a statute of limitations argument, or if you do get it now, uh, I wouldn't anticipate that that argument's going to get traction in most courts. Uh, title of property is always at issue. That's the bottom line on that. Now, there's also appellate litigation and uh, appeals in California I think in terms of a trend, there's so many different areas uh, on which litigation is brought. Uh, rescission, I will bring up that. I'm, I'm, I will talk really briefly about the FDCPA. I do think that uh, that's on life support. The Federal Debt Collections Practices Act, um, it's not a debt letter in the Ninth Circuit or in related non-judicial states, it is on life support. And there are some cases that, again, I'm not going to get into the particulars due to time constraints. We have discussed that in detail on this show previously. We will again, I'm sure. Uh, 
I think the FDCPA is theoretically worth revisiting in certain contexts. As a practical matter, it's been very difficult to get FDCPA to stick as a cause of action going to trial. Uh, by definition, of course, though it's not exclusively the case that you would file such a case in federal court, typically you would. And, of course, if you have state-related matters, you could file them in state court. Uh, but because of the federal jurisdiction related to that particular cause of action, you really aren't best off in federal court if that's what you're pleading as a main cause of action. And federal courts here in California and other non-judicial arenas have been skeptical of the FDCPA, and they've tended to buy the argument that uh, foreclosing parties on a first lien mortgage, whether that's from a refi or an origination, they are not debt collectors. That's the bottom line. The reasons for that are fairly, I wouldn't necessarily say complex, but involved. And so we will get into that in a future show. Uh, the other big deal in uh, federal litigation, which is also going to show up on appeals, and it, it has been established going into 2020, I would love to say that rescission cases um, are not on life support. I think they are, unfortunately. So for any of you out there with a rescission case going into 2020, I think, yes, you can still bring uh, rescission cases that might get traction. However, it really is going to be important if you do so that the operative events be within three years of whatever your rescission date is. So, yes, if you... And in the real world, though it's not a legal requirement, it's a it's real world, and it is a sort of legal real world requirement. If you send a certified letter or some in some other way, tracked and confirmed your mailing of a rescission letter, doesn't have to, you know, as I, I love to quote, Justice Scalia made it sound like you could literally just write on the back of an envelope, a paper napkin, whatever, I'm rescinding this loan. As long as it's clear what loan you're rescinding, that's good enough. And that is the way it should be, frankly. And that is the way it is technically. Nevertheless, you have to be able to prove that you did send such a written communication, a letter, which in clear terms identifies the loan, the controller of the loan, the nominal uh, trust whoever supposedly holds the note or whoever originated it and that you're indicating you're rescinding that loan. So if that's done within three years of either the origination of or the refinance, and again, yes, that makes a difference for rescission purposes. In fact, it can make a big difference. We will discuss that in detail in another show. Just not at the moment. The takeaway for listeners right now is this. If you have a rescinded loan 
and you got documentation that you rescinded it, and that rescission was within three years of the operative TILA event. Typically, that would have been a refinance, let's say circa 2007, 2008, 9, 10 even. Yes, if your rescission letter was issued within that three-year time period after that time, after the, the operative date, you've got a prospective case. I have uh, a case now moving forward in federal court on that basis. Uh, I'm still getting pushed back. There's still going to be a lot of issues about how that plays out. But that's the type of case that I think could go to trial. If you're rescinding now or you've rescinded beyond that three-year time frame, at least in the Ninth Circuit, I am not seeing any traction in those cases, and I think that's going to continue to be the case. Um, Unlawful detainer litigation, next topic. Now, in California, one of the things that we are increasingly seeing is plaintiffs just dismissing voluntarily their litigation and then refiling. And is this an abusive process? Uh, well, yes, in many ways, actually, it is. I mean, let me give you some perspective. If our side, if a California foreclosed party in plaintiff's litigation dismisses his or her case for various technical or other procedural or even some substantive reasons, which may be legally justified, then there's kind of a presumption within the legal system that they've done something untoward or they've done something outside the rules. Uh, what's interesting about that is is this. Uh, they don't get a pass in many cases. Yet what I'm seeing is a lot of UD plaintiffs are dismissing their cases when they're not getting the quick result they think they should, and which, frankly, in these particularly foreclosure cases they would normally get. And so they're just refiling new cases. And again, the abuse of that is so is so kind of rich and off the charts, they're even filing new cases while, while the other cases are pending. I, I virtually never see um, foreclosed parties from our side do that. I mean, they may end up dismissing case for various reasons and for legal and good reasons, typically, and then refiling sometime later. But for them to file in the same jurisdiction a case with similar facts and law and parties, to just file another case where the other case is still pending, uh, no, that doesn't happen. In, in the foreclosure world. I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm saying it would be extremely unusual. And if you have counterexamples, yes, to uh, do provide. Uh, back in the real world and the legal world, it's plaintiffs, UD attorneys who are doing this now with the securitized trust who the, the U.S. banks, uh, the Wells Fargo's, the other major securitized trusts that we typically see, the Bank of New York Mellon, they're all still out there. 
and they are your typical UD plaintiffs here in California. And yes, they're abusing legal procedure. Uh, that's not uh, a legal claim that I'm making. That's an observation. Uh, we've already had a disclaimer at the intro, and I sometimes provide one during the show, and I will do so now. This show is a topical interest show. I'm not giving anybody legal advice. So if you're smart and on our side, you will look into what I'm talking about. Um, now, I'm also going to briefly touch on bankruptcy practice, you know, in terms of trends to look for. Uh, I think there's a lot of digging. I think there's a lot of digging in on the part of trustees. Uh, these are the bankruptcy trustees. Um, the system is becoming more and more difficult to work in. This is true for Chapter 13 matters. It's even true in Chapter 7. Uh, we will be discussing this in more detail on a future show. And there are some novel and cutting-edge approaches also in the arena that I will bring up in a future show soon. So meanwhile, uh, Neil will be back next week, and I will be back shortly as well. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.